Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today's special guest specializes in human performance, personal development for men, and is a sought-after international presenter in the field of health and fitness. Mike Salemi, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me, brother. I'm stoked to be here, stoked to share, man. Awesome, awesome. So maybe, Mike, do you want to let my listeners know a little bit about your story. Let them understand like where you came from and what you do. Absolutely. My journey in all this stuff from fitness to men's work to breath work, the main three components that I teach today, all started from being a competitive athlete. So I competed for almost 10 years at an elite level in drug-free powerlifting, competed for about 10 years at an elite level, world championship level in kettlebell sport, was a gymnast growing up. And in all the sports that I've competed in, the common thread and the common theme was reached a high level, but then continuously broke my body in that pursuit. And Mm -hmm. so, so much of what I teach and so much what I share is now looking back, looking at those lessons, what would I have shared maybe with my younger self or people that resonate with this message who want to be a high performer, want to push themselves, but want to put themselves in an environment and a situation 
where their body can actually adapt to the stresses that they're putting in. It's not like, man, I was so fixed to training programs and doing everything to the T that a coach would share, which was great. And what I realized is my own body has an internal intelligence that if I listen to that first or I check in with that, the longevity of my lifting and my performance can go so much higher and also spill into all the other aspects of my life. Mm, amazing, man. Amazing. I can relate somewhat there. I mean, I used to play uh, professional soccer and, you know, I was very, very disciplined and focused on training all the time. And then, yeah, I think um, like choosing to go down that like professional athlete path, it's without a doubt, you build a, a lot of discipline, you know, you feel, you, you learn good habits, but I think um, one aspect there that gets neglected is like what happens when they stop playing mm. like to their mental health. So maybe you want to expand a bit on that. Yeah. It, to be honest, for me, it was really challenging when I left the identity of being an athlete really when I was 30, I'm 35 now, about five years ago, I basically found, found out within myself that I love competing and I love testing myself, but my best and biggest contribution today can be as a teacher and to be as a coach. But that transition was so hard because every decision I made, every choice I made, how I cared for myself, the relationships I had, the business opportunities, partnerships, et cetera, all came from the realm of I'm an athlete. This is all I know. And so when I made that switch, and I've talked to so many other high-level athletes, UFC fighters, Olympic athletes, and it doesn't even need to be a, a sport per se, but anyone who's really pushed themselves to achieve some level of success in their life oftentimes our identity, who we think we are, is so attached to that. And so it's taken me honestly until the last maybe year or two to really embrace this new identity as, as a teacher, as a businessman. And so I can derive so much fulfillment in this new role. So it definitely wasn't easy, took a lot of soul searching, but I can honestly say where I'm at now, I really do feel I am doing exactly what I was meant to do. Yeah, man, that's uh, it's incredible to hear that. I love, um, I love when people find their find their calling, or you know, they're very aligned with what they do, and they just gain so much from that. So I'd love to sort of um, expand upon the like the physical exhaustion slash like overtraining that many of you know <laughs> us athletes face. So like, let's sort of explore that together. Yeah, man. Well, like here's the thing: <clears throat> when it comes to fitness, especially. Uh, let's just take entrepreneurs as an example. Um, I think anyone listening to some level is probably an entrepreneur in their own right. If they're listening to this podcast or really just motivated to create something beautiful for themselves. And so what I found is in my own life and a lot of people that I talk with, especially men, the physical part is oftentimes the door that's most open in this in society today in Western society today, it's the aspect that's most celebrated. It's the aspect that most people are comfortable in. But what happens is, is like with that perspective, there's so much that gets left on the table. Mm -hmm. And so in fitness, like when you're training your physical body, especially if you're pushing yourself, like you can really feel it when you sweat, when you grind, when you're on the floor, just like melted onto the floor, just covered in sweat. It's something that is so tangibly felt and people associate myself included for a long time with, if I feel like I've killed myself, then it's a good workout. And that's the metric. If I'm dying on the ground, huffing and puffing, 
And what I've really realized is I've had to really change that perspective into a sense, even at the simplest level, that whatever I'm doing, the amount of volume, the amount of trainings per week, if I'm doing working out, then life is, there is no perfect balance, but so much of life is having the awareness of when we're out of balance so we can bring it back to center. So what I've been able to do in the past few years, and even towards the end of my competing was really marry this concept of working out with working in. So energy cultivating activities, creating room for rest and repair, et cetera. And once I've done that, my perspective around training now for me, like, yeah, I'll get sore. And I do think it's important for myself and everyone to push themselves so they can actually see, like really raise the threshold, really raise. And you have to be honest with yourself if that you know is your new threshold. But once you've reached that, like it's so much about, in my experience, about how are we going to be able to sustain that? Every training should not be an ass kicker training. And this is why I do believe that there is some great CrossFit coaches, but so many of the conversations, not to pick on CrossFit, but I was just talking with a gentleman yesterday who's been doing it for 10 years. And he's like, I'm just tired with my body continually feeling beat up. I don't think I can sustain this for a long period of time. So that may have worked for him in the past, but now as our goals change, as we grow as human beings, so much of us, when we embody more of a mature mindset, more of a a man or a woman's mindset, as opposed to a boy or a girl, we have to look at these things outside that are also contributing to our physical performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one aspect there, Mike, is, um, the difficulty as athletes being such like um, type A personalities, very like driven, <laughs> like the ability to like pull back is so difficult for many of us. Mm-hmm. So like what are some of the like telltale signs and symptoms of an athlete like overtraining? So by the time someone's got, so there's something called overreaching and overtraining by the si- time some, and sometimes it can get confusing overreaching is like a precursor to overtraining by the time you've legitimately overtrained some like really practical advice i can give is and i remember this very vividly like i always do a warm up before training i enjoy it helps how my body feels it improves the workout etc but when your normal work whatever you're doing for warming up whether you're hopping on a row or doing some mobility work when it's taking you noticeably longer to reach a level of feeling warmed up, feeling prepared, feeling ready. That's one of the telltale signs. Mm-hmm. And originally like warmups would take me 15 to 20, 25 minutes max. Uh, but going from a 15 minute warm up to really realizing, man, I really don't feel warmed up or loose or my joints feeling good unless I do 30 to 45 minutes. That was a big telltale sign for me. The other thing, and this was one of the most practical advice I ever got from one of my greatest mentors and coaches, who's a guy named Paul Check. He got this from, I believe it was Charlie Francis, who's an Olympic track and field coach or was, is every single time that you step into the gym, you should be able to exceed your last performance by one to 3%. If you can't honestly say when I hop in, I can exceed my last performance by that, then you need to make some level of modification in your training. Now that might be reducing training volume by like 50% your sets and reps, or it might be taking a full rest day if you're really burnt out, 
or it could just be doing some type of active recovery. But those are two very simple things that I think anyone can relate to longer workout times. And what's your level of motivation and physical readiness to come back into the gym every single time. And literally when I hop in the gym, I'm like, I want to break this motherfucker off the ground. And that's the excitement that I look at. And so if I'm waking up each morning and dreading the training, not to say that I need to Sometimes we need to kick our own ass. Like we need to be Mick from Rocky and get up, you son of a bitch. You know, uh, we need to we need to push ourselves and be honest with ourselves. But that being said, we should be able to enter the gym with full vitality, full mental assertiveness, and really create an increase in performance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, part of that, I'd like to hear your opinion. I know before you mentioned about like muscle soreness as sometimes being a marker of like a good workout. Where do you stand there? Because I'm always under the impression that like if I'm if I'm not super sore, then in my head, I'm like, I haven't worked hard enough. So like, what's your stance there? That's such a great point because that absolutely is another telltale sign of when someone feels accomplished or they got a good workout. You know, what I've really realized is there's so many measurements of progress. It really just depends what we're looking at. And so just like when someone today says, you know, are you successful? Oftentimes, the very first thing that people think about is my measure of success in business is the finances in my bank account, right? Now, if someone said that could be a measurement of business, but when we talk about like a good workout, you got to look at things like, how does your body feel? Do you feel more comfortable in your body? Do you feel more safe in your body? Can you trust yourself to do movements that maybe before felt like, holy shit, I never thought I could do that skill development, flexibility. There's so many, even in the realm of strength, there's so many different types of strength. You've got, for example, absolute strength, which is like a power lifter, an Olympic weightlifter. Olympic weightlifter is more power. But that being said, a power lifter measures their level of success by how much can they push a one rep all out maximum effort. The measurement of success for a power lifter is, is their bench press squat and deadlift going up? But there's relative strength. How strength are you relative to your body weight? Like a gymnast, there's explosive strength. So there's so many, what's your other measurements of strength that I really pay attention to honestly is when you're doing a workout, what is your level of breathlessness? So if right in the middle of the workout in the first round, you're literally out of breath, you're gassed out. For me, that's a very low level of fitness and performance. For me, one of the biggest changes in the last maybe three years in all my training I do it all nasal breathing. I'll either tape my mouth or put like take a sip of water and hold it in my mouth. And I basically train at nasal breathing intensity. So then when I do have those efforts or those times, maybe every two weeks to month where I'm, those are like threshold workouts. I want to push myself even more. And yes, I am looking for soreness. What I'm really looking for is how much more efficient is my body running in that workout? So maybe before I needed to switch to mouth breathing after round one or circuit one. And then as I progress one month, two months, three months, can I stay calm? Can I stay collected? Can I stay in my strategy for that session and not gas myself out? So those are just a few things, but I think it's just at any level, it's opening up the lens of what are the other measurements of success in a workout. And soreness is only one. And it can be nice because we can feel it, but there's so many other markers to look at if something was effective. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a a brilliant way to look at it. It's not just one, you know, don't just focus on that one metric. There are multiple 
metrics there. And I'm also glad that you mentioned the, um, the mouth taping because that's, uh, mm. <laughs> I, just, I just took mine off, man. I just woke up. And I- <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. What about in terms of progressive overload? I'd love to explore that with you because I'd imagine you'd know quite a lot there in terms of how can someone apply that principle like it may not just be by increasing weight, like what other ways can someone progressively overload? So when you're looking at progressive over usually what I'm looking at or the system that I'm thinking of in my brain is like almost like a stair. So if someone can picture this where in like week one, let's just take the bench press or the squat, which most people might be familiar with. Maybe week one, you're doing whatever sets and reps at 50% of your one rep max, then 55, then 60 and so on. And that can be really beneficial and helpful, but the body doesn't usually, unless you're like a beginner lifter, right? If you're beginning in fitness, damn, I could throw anything at you. This is like why I love working with kids because man, I could throw the kitchen sink at them no matter what, and they'll keep improving. But if you've been training for a little bit and you've got a base level of fitness, it honestly, I haven't seen it work for the long term. And so what I really recommend is cycling training. So if you think of it like a wave where on those lifts, maybe if your focus is speed, you're going to do lower percentages faster. Maybe you go 50%, 55, 60, and then drop it back down to 50, 55, 60. And you, you basically do undulating periodization, which essentially is a fancy word for cycling. All that to say is, even if you were doing this every week incremental way of lifting, one of the biggest missing elements in most all conditioning programs is what we call phasing. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the body's not doesn't operate linearly. Like we are not machines. We need to give it input so it can respond. But if, for example, you're hitting 50 to 90, 100%, you're doing this over eight to 10 weeks, whatever your training plan is, allow yourself the space to do a deload. And a deload might be one to two weeks where you actually, you can still move. Like I'm a huge proponent of move every day, but allow yourself the space to refill the energy gas tank. So then when you come into the next cycle, you do so from a different platform. You do so from an elevated platform because that's one of the biggest mistakes that I see in novice CrossFit CrossFit coaches, for example, is they keep their people in what I would call a competition or a pre-competition phase year round. That's how I broke myself. It's so many times I was constantly pushing, constantly pushing. I was making gains. And then all of a sudden I would hit a plateau and I'm like, man, I'm being so disciplined with my workouts. I'm doing everything the coach would say. I'm like videoing my training, doing analysis. I'm going crazy with this stuff. Why am I not improving? And oftentimes is I didn't allow myself the space to actually refill and perform more yin or more restorative activities. So the cycling of the training in phases is huge because everything that goes up, you're going to need to come back down so that you can do so from a new level. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what you're saying there, I guess, Mike, is that uh, applying a deload week does not kill your gains. In other words, no, no. And, and, and again, this is all a matter of mindset and perspective, right? Like that, I mean, I've, I've trained from the injured people in rehab clinics to all the way back up to Olympic level athletes time and time again. And man, what's across the board in terms of like, here's the thing, you could be a high performer in the gym or in your business. And so many people do that, but they aren't able to repeat that year in, year out. Maybe they have one year or three years of a good stint, but if you're really excelling, 
man, it's, it's damn near impossible to keep on that forward or upward trajectory. So yeah, man, it, it absolutely takes the awareness to know that if I take one step back or a half a step back, I'm going to do that because I know that is going to propel me three steps forward in the long run. Because even though, for example, strength, we could say strength training as an example, strength training is a marathon and that's what you have to approach. Like we're putting money in the bank account. We're planting seeds so that we can experience those later. And if we don't water the seeds, if we don't give it adequate sun, over time, that plant will die. We are organic organisms and we have to give ourselves the inputs to allow ourselves to continually progress. As far as actually applying a typical, let's say, deload week, as you know, let's say we're looking at someone's typical training program, maybe like an eight to 12 week, just typical strength uh, training program. Um, are we simply applying, saying just like picking one week out of the, like at the very end of that or implementing it during the actual training program? Such a good question, man. Such a good question. I think it really depends on your level as a lifter. It also depends on the duration of that training plan and also how hard it is. Like for the first month, if you're doing low loads, like 50, 55, 60, you know, 60 ish percent, you're not going to really need a deload. Like there's not much to deload from. So it really depends where you are in that cycle. But what I would say is across the board, if you're not taking one week, at least one to two weeks, every 12 weeks, every quarter to back off the training volume, choose simpler exercises or do things as an example, if you're looking for just general strength or you want to really build up a bigger squat bench and deadlift, like one of the best exercises, not just for those people, but really anyone in general for me is sled pulling. Sled pulling in general is like, you'll get a cardio effect. You'll start training the entire posterior chain, the muscles in the back of the body. But the other thing too, is when you look at a sled pull. So imagine if someone's listening and they're not familiar, imagine just uh, a sled on the ground, a steel plate or whatever it is stacked with a plate or two. You can do it on any surface, grass, concrete, whatever. You've got a string and you're pulling it around your waist or you've got a harness. When you do that, you're continually moving in a forward direction. So it's what's called a concentric effort. Most of the soreness, and this is also to answer your question like earlier about if you're not sore, is it a good workout? It depends what type of training you're doing because in sled pulling, well, most all the soreness that we experience from workouts comes from the lowering phase, which is called the eccentric component. So in sled pulling, there is no eccentric. There is no lowering phase. There is no big tearing down of the muscles. So what you get is you get a pumping of blood to those areas, and it's going to basically give you the ability to continually move, train those areas, but not nearly actually what I found is it actually reduces soreness. It's a great way of active recovery where you can still get that push, but it's not going to tear you down nearly as much. So, you know, if for me, when I'm training, I'm usually deloading approximately every eight weeks, eight weeks with a one to two week deload. And then I'll come back fresh for the next cycle. Mm, awesome. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the, um, the sled. Cause I've been, I've been bouncing around different gyms here in Melbourne. Like I don't have one that I go to. I just float between different ones. And, um, the one that I went to recently, they have a, they do have a sled set up and, um, it was the first time ever I did the backwards sled pull, man, that felt so good. Like it feels so good because you're activating all these muscle groups, like these muscles that were, they're like dormant because we're always like 
walking forward, right? Dude, that's that's so spot on. And and I love that you said backwards pulling because even in this, like people are sled pulling. I don't even know what percent, maybe one to 3% are actually doing reverse pulls. And anyone who suffers from knee pain, and I've had knee issues for, for years and just poor lift or like not really taking care of my body, as I was mentioning earlier, as well as I could. And reverse sled pulling is one of the best things anybody can do for knee health. And so it will condition all the small muscles in and around the knee, as well as the large, like what, let me ask you, how did your quads feel after that? Dude, I felt like you said before, it felt like my, <laughs> the blood was pumping there, just pumped up, completely pumped. Felt good. Right. It feels so good. Right. And we're, I'm curious, were you sore from that or not so much? Or how did you feel? Well, the thing is I actually finished on sleds after hitting legs first. So actually, okay. yeah, I pulled up fairly sore, but I'm actually thinking of dedicating a, like a, a purely like leg-based workout just using the sleds. Like maybe, yeah, we'll see how we go. I think that's great, man. I would do that when I was competing in powerlifting. Usually if I was doing double days, oftentimes, almost always my second workout of the day was on sled pulling. And you can do upper body pulling, lower body pulling. Like if you have a strap and you basically get like, depending on someone's arm, like let's say a six to an eight feet additional rope, you feed it through. You can do presses, rows, shoulder extensions. You can do so much creative rotational exercises. Because I think when most people think about sled pulling, all they think about is the lower body. It's a fantastic tool that you can also use to get that blood flow in a way that's not going to tear you down for the upper body as well. What are some of the upper body exercises you can do like with the sled? So as I mentioned, you could do any type of push, any type of pull, any rotation, shoulder exercises. But the other thing too, that I loved about sled work is, you know, if someone imagines me grabbing, uh, that fed through strap one in each hand, you can do bilateral pushing. So you can do both arms working, but you can also do single arm stuff. So maybe you double up the rope on one hand and you do the same thing, pushing. You can do pushing with rotation, pulling with rotation. You can stand sideways and do different types of directions of, of shoulder raises. So it's really your creativity can go quite a bit higher. And with any single arm or single leg exercise, I'm, I, I love the squat and I love the deadlift, but I really can't stress enough how much I've gotten. And also with clients and students uh, out of just adding in unilateral single arm, single leg exercises. If I had to choose between a bilateral or just a classic squat and a single leg squat, like a Bulgarian squat where your rear foot's elevated or lunges 10 times out of 10, I would always choose the single leg variation because you'll get to basically see and feel the level of imbalances between the left and the right side. And it'll be a way for you to really bring up those weak points. Mm -hmm. And I really do feel single arm, single leg work is more functional from just an everyday perspective, because when you look at just daily life activities or just moving stuff outside in the yard or whatever it is, very few of them happen with perfect stance and perfect positioning. You're usually offset. Usually your balance is compromised. Usually you're having to coordinate your right arm with your left leg or your left arm with your right leg. And so why shouldn't our training reflect that? Because it's exactly what our body needs, but oftentimes we rarely allow ourselves the space or the opportunity to do it. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I'm actually doing some, it's the first time ever, but I'm, I'm raising my leg during the podcast, that's a unilateral podcast. 
<laughs> yes, yes. I do. I do agree, man. I think um, the the, the single legged things and things like that are definitely underrated. I'd actually love to get your opinion on like the um, most overrated exercises in the gym are. Like, what are some lifts that you think people are doing that are just like they're actually not doing much at all? So, in general, depending on who's listening to this show, probably for me the most overrated is if someone's still doing machine based training. Still doing like, for example, um, I'm sure everyone's seen what's called the Smith machine in the gym. So that's basically like a squat bar on these rails where you literally are in a fixed position. You go up and you go down. If there was a place for that, maybe in certain rehab settings, maybe when someone's injured or something like that, like they don't quite have the stabilizer strength yet and you're kind of progressing them. But essentially machine-based training as a whole, and again, not that there's not a place for it, but if most of your training structured around it, it's not going to integrate your postural system. It's not usually going to integrate your stabilizer system. Oftentimes it gives people a false sense of strength. And I hear this a lot when people can like, oh, dude, Mike, I just did 800 pounds on the leg press but my squat's shit. Like I can only do 150 pounds or 200 pounds or hundred kilos, whatever. And they're like, why is that? And there is definitely some reason that when you're on a leg press, one, one reason for that is it's what's called an open chain exercise. So an open chain exercise is any exercise where the extremity, the distal extremity can overcome the load. So in a leg press, you're laying down and your legs can overload, can overcome the resistance and you push it away. But in a squat, when you have a bar on your back, you can't overload the floor, right? So you're pushing. So they require two different recruitment patterns. This is why also people who can load the shit out of the lat pull down machine, and then they try and do a pull up. They don't get that carryover because the sequencing is different. They don't work the same. So I would say machine training as a whole, things like the leg press, things like the lat pull down. If you were to change that to something like two-legged squat or a single leg squat or do an actual pull-up with different grips, you're going to go, it's going to be so much more. In the functional training realm, what I see most often is people are over-relying the majority of their training on foundational lifts. And that's great. And, you know, foundational lifts, like the squat, the bench, those are great. But if you're not a power lifter for me, who's that's your sport and that's what you do. Those lifts are most important in the early phases. When you're basically trying to simplify the movements and you're basically trying to increase your level of strength with not an excessive amount of complexity, they're like base strength, base foundational lifts. Once you progress beyond that, I'm always a proponent of, we need to challenge our nervous system. We need to challenge our brain so that it can continually be smarter. And the ways you can do that is like we talked about single leg training, coordination training, balance training, working in, even in similar movements, working in new ranges of motion. So you have more control and you can own more of your body, no matter what position or what angle or what plane or what pattern you're in. That's really what I'm looking at. And when you take, for example, going back to the Smith machine example, that is actually a regression to what we call primal standard as normal functioning adults, damn near anything that you're going to do on your day or in your sport or your preferred activity is going to have one or some combination of seven primal movement patterns, primal meaning like how we were designed to move. And that's going to be squatting, bending, twisting, pushing, pulling, gait, and lunging. 
So when you're looking at a Smith machine, a Smith machine is actually a regression. It makes your nervous system, the computer system of your brain, it essentially makes it dumber. So that if you were in a normal environment where you had to pick a box from outside of your truck or something like that, pick it up off the floor and move it into the truck, doing a, a Smith machine uh, squat or some type of deadlift that's hyper fixed is not going to have the same transfer and your nervous system won't really know what to do with that movement. So as soon as someone can do something, I'm always like, how can I layer in intentionally and intelligently one level of complexity up so that they continually progress? Yeah. Yeah. No, you, uh, you nailed that really well. I think, um, somebody that I spoke to, I had Doug Brignall on the podcast actually, um, at once he's like the biomechanics of, of lifting. And he mentioned something, mm. about, um, uh, I think he wrote the book, the biomechanics of, of lifting or something like that. But, um, he was saying that shoulder pressing is not, like a primal movement. Like what are, what are your thoughts on like the actual shoulder press itself? I mean, <laughs> I've been binge watching. I don't watch too much TV. I don't even have a TV. It's for my computer, but I've been binge watching for like months now uh, alone. Have you seen that show alone? No survival show. It's freaking awesome. Basically they drop usually 10 participants in some, they're all survival experts in some extreme situation, like uh, there was one in Patagonia, there was one in Mongolia, there was one in like uh, Vancouver Island in Canada. So super extreme conditions. And you basically, the only way, the only way that you win, there's no time duration to it, except for on one season, but there's no time duration. It's basically who can outlast everybody else. And you don't know when the other person, and you can't get, you're all self-filming. So there's no film crew. They do like a two week orientation where they teach you how to work the camera, et cetera. But it's cool. Cause you get to see these people and they, I'm sure they have to have like the camera on cer- certain hours at so many hours of the day, but you really get to observe them building a shelter, them fishing, them doing all these things that they need to do to survive out there. And you'll see they are doing, you know, they are doing overhead lifts. Like when they're building their shelter, they are lifting wood above their head. They are taking, they're carrying large stumps of trees, whether it's 500 yards or whatever, 500 meters back to their site so they can chop it with wood and they're pushing it off your shoulder. So I would say, in my opinion, the overhead press absolutely is necessary. That being said, I think more functional is going to be horizontal. So chest level pressing, especially from an offset stance and single arm. So for example, you would do your left foot in front of your right, your right back a little bit. You'd have a load or some object in your, in your other arm. And it might be like, think about this, throwing a spear or throwing a baseball, those movements. So if we look at throwing a baseball, for example, a baseball throw, the first thing that happens is the person steps forward. That's a lunge pattern. Then the next thing that happens is the torso rotates or twists. That's a twist pattern. The last thing that happens is the throw, which is an extension of the press or push pattern. So in order to be successful as a baseball player, a foot American football player throwing a spear, you're going to need to be proficient in all of those three movements, especially with a stance and in a way that correlates. So I do think that single arm, single leg stuff is going to be more probably transferable and especially at chest level than overhead. But I do honestly think there is a place for overhead movement, especially, especially the saying is always, if you can't, you must. So if you can't press something overhead without major 
compensations in the body. Like a big common one is anyone who presses overhead. Usually their rib cage starts to flare up. Like if you can't manage your spine and manage your rib cage and keep everything integrated, you should be able to do that. And then your choice of how far or where you want to go with it is all going to depend on your goals, objective, what sports you're doing, et cetera. But you should be able to do that well. And then once again, you can choose how far you take it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. What about as far as like looking into injury prevention, the only thing that I've always, in terms of like preventing like maybe shoulder injuries is like warming up the rotator cuffs, what else have you seen work well as far as like general like injury prevention? So I would say for me, at least what I see the most is shoulder injuries and low back injuries. I do see some hip stuff, but it's like shoulders and low back shoulders. I mean, it's the most mobile joint in the body. It's also tends to be one of the more vulnerable ones. And also the space in the shoulder, like the, here's the other thing too, like The shoulder joint itself, most people think of it as the glenerohumeral joint, the big ball and socket joint, but the shoulder joint is actually five joints. Okay. So in order to have a well-functioning shoulder, any muscle that crosses a joint is going to have an effect on it. And when we look at the fascial system, even things like your left big toe could absolutely affect your right shoulder when you're doing a push or a press, whatever you're doing. So it's one developing the understanding that everything affects everything in the body. And if your feet don't work or you have super collapsed arches, that will affect everything up the chain. So sometimes, and I'm sure people have heard this before, it's oftentimes where the pain or the dysfunction is, is not always where the root cause of the issue is. And that's why anyone who assesses the shoulder or looks at it needs to also, yes, we can assess that area, but we absolutely need to look at everything that could be connected to it. Mm. As it relates to the shoulder, Probably, I think the rotator cuff specifically gets way more attention and gets way more overworked when someone's trying to rehab their shoulder. Not that it's not important, but most people can like across the board, don't really train the other primary muscles that support the shoulder Two in particular that I really focus on training a lot is the deltoids, especially the middle deltoids. And, uh, I'll kind of give a demonstration. I'll walk someone through it with this. You choose super light dumbbells because the main goal, especially when you're rehabbing in the beginning is to improve the mind muscle connection and to actually build a healthy quality muscle. And I do that first through volume through repetitions. And so maybe in the beginning, I've got like a two pound weight or like a one kilo weight in each arm. My arms are right at my side, like in a T position. And basically what I'm doing, I'm holding the light dumbbells And I'm imagining that there's like a champagne bottle balancing on my wrist so that I keep it. There's no spilling of the champagne bottle from there. You push out through the the fists of your palms to increase space in the shoulder. And then you raise it basically up to about eye or forehead level. And you basically do these standing butterflies. But as you're doing this, you want to pay attention that your trap, basically the muscles of your, your upper neck, your upper trap are not raising as well. You're doing clean and clear raises of the shoulder. I would start with, let's say one kilo, build up to sets of 10 reps, recover as long as you need to come back fresh, then 20, then 30, then 40, then 50, and then back down to the beginning. And then you can increase the weight. The Mm. other big muscle that oftentimes people forget when it comes to training the shoulders is the rhomboids. 
So the rhomboid and also the rhomboids are what, like, if anyone's got forward head position, which so many of us do have. And that just means when, if you were to look at me from the side, if my ear has migrated in front of the major central head of the shoulder, you have what's called forward head posture. That becomes a problem because every inch that the head moves forward, it adds the, the weight of the human head one time. So if you've got three inches, like you're a student or you're a computer worker and you're always with this forward migrated head, it's going to add a load of, you know, maybe the average human head weighs, I don't know, eight to 12 pounds. If you're three inches over, it's like you're carrying a 36 pound, a 13, 14 kilo bowling ball on your head. So you can imagine all of the neck muscles, everything that gets so lit up. So the rhomboids help pull the shoulder bet, shoulders back into a better position and helps align the head and neck. And oftentimes when people are getting themselves into a painful situation for the press or any shoulder movement, it's because their starting position is off. Mm. You've got three phases of any lift. You've got the start, you've got the middle, which is the execution, and then you have the finish. I say all three phases are absolutely important, but for me, the setup, how you start the lift, if that's jacked up, everything after it will be impacted. So mm -hmm. making sure that you've got good alignment and a good setup will absolutely be critical to anything that you do for the shoulder. Mm, amazing. Great stuff. Um, as you're mentioning that, Mike, something that popped up in my mind is uh, something that I've neglected a lot, and that's like the isometric exercises like i don't i don't do enough of those but i'd love to hear your opinion on them dude that's such a good question because i think most people don't train isometrics which essentially is a static hold where you're holding a position for an extended period of time the beautiful thing about isometrics for strength and rehab is when you do an isometric lift there isn't that there isn't the same or there isn't that tearing down of the muscle fibers so one thing, as we were talking earlier, in any lift, you have the lowering phase, which is the eccentric. That's where the tearing happens. That's where a lot of the soreness happens. Then you have the concentric phase, which is the raising phase. In an isometric, you're statically holding. There is no eccentric. There is no concentric. And so what you get is this massive pumping of blood to the tissues without the tearing down. So let's use an example that probably everyone knows, but doesn't do or hates to do. And it's the classic wall squat. Yeah. And so you basically sit like you're sitting in a chair with your back against the wall. And it is one of the most excruciating things in the world. And one thing I would recommend if anyone does that exercise, I'll give a few big, big like pro tips on it. So most people, when they train, they do so always from the same position. So when you squat, you always squat with your feet maybe shoulder width apart, feet exactly perfect. What I would do is on a wall squat, I would do it with, let's say my feet apart, knees apart, maybe six to 10 inches. I would train that. When you come out of a wall squat, and again, this is one of the best exercises for knee rehab. When you come out, the important thing is not to stand up. The important thing, have a cushion or a pad underneath your butt, and you want to lower down out of the movement, sit, rest, stand back up. Once you've drilled feet apart, knees apart, then keep your feet apart, knees together. Once you've trained that, then feet together, knees together. Then once you've trained that, feet together, knees apart. And those position changes now gives you way more of a quality effect on the quads and it's working all the different quads, focusing on the position. So you could take a classic movement and I would also record which position are you weakest in and I would train the shit out of that. 
but just changing those little details, changing the angles can have a completely different effect on the person. Mm, that's amazing, man. Like I, um, just, just listening to you mention all these different movements and exercises, like I just can't wait to step back into the gym and apply. All- <laughs> Cause um, yeah, I think, yeah, like you mentioned the isometrics neglected, a lot of the unilateral stuff's neglected backwards, posterior movements, like with the sleds neglected as far as like, I'd love to hear your, like, what are your goals in the long term with your own exercise and, and movement? Like, how do you foresee yourself approaching training for the next maybe 20, 30 years? Oh, man, that's such a good question. It's changed so much. I mean, now my primary focus for sure is like business and stuff like that, over competing and over training. So, just with that awareness, my level of training, my duration of the trainings, my amount of trainings per week, all of that's very different now. So for me, and I think many people maybe see my Instagram and see me to crazy shit and like exciting stuff with the kettlebell, the Bulgarian bag and other body weight stuff. What they don't see is that I'm usually now only training about two times a week, sometimes three times a week. But when I do train, it's that same principle earlier. I'm expecting myself to enter the gym as if I can exceed that last performance by one to 3%. If not, there's a modification or I'm taking it as a rest day. So the way that I see my training moving forward is I'll be fully honest. I'm nowhere near as strong as I used to be. Like when I was powerlifting at 19 in kilos, my, I was a 605 squat in pounds. So I don't know if that's 275 kilos, so somewhere, I don't know, something like that. Bench press was 470 pounds. So take a little more than half of that for kilos. And then deadlift was 615 pounds and my body weight was 178 pounds. I'm nowhere near as strong as I used to be in those perspectives, but I feel like there's no comparison of how much better I feel. Like I feel relatively speaking, like you could put me in any situation. Like if I needed to go on a hunt tomorrow and it'd be like, I don't know, a 10 mile hunt where I have to pack out meat and stuff like that. I know I can do that and it wouldn't crush me. Mm. So my training moving forward is most focused around movement and skill development, strength and numbers and that stuff, probably second or third. Mm. I want to be a great fucking mover, love being in my body, feel amazing. And if I can also build strength and fitness in that process, then great. And I know it does. It, uh, they all work together, but I'm not measuring performance over the next 10, 20, 30 years by the number that's on the bar. Mm. I'm measuring it by how I feel, how resilient my body is, how well I can do things that before seemed foreign and straight. Like when I was powerlifting, if you asked me to sprint, dude, one, it was going to be super slow. And two, I probably would have pulled a hamstring. <laughs> like, but now if you say, fuck, Lucas, Mike and Lucas, let's go outside, let's do some sprints. Not only could I do it, but I could actually enjoy it. And I really want to enjoy my life. That's the biggest thing around it. Yeah, man, that's amazing. I respect, um, I respect the level of awareness that you have there with all that. And um, yeah, I can resonate a lot with what you said. Um, as far as, I guess, like for my listeners, if they want to connect with you, learn more. I mean, I've learned so much just within this, uh, oh, thank you. this, within this interview. And I'm going to definitely check out all of your stuff. Where can they find you or work with you? So my website is Mike Salemi, S-A-L-E-M-I dot I-O. That's got a list of all my programs, whether it's Everything that I teach has a lifestyle component because as I mentioned, like I'm not really interested in like I work definitely with Olympic still coaches and as a consultant, but 
I really want to help people as I was talking, like love their body more, move great, not beat themselves up. So even in my kettlebell programs, like kettlebell lifestyle, which is a nine week follow along, it's as much of a lifestyle program, active meditation, stretching, modifying training based off of how you're feeling as it is lifting a weight with a kettlebell. So that's got all my programs for people who are focused on kettlebells, have a base. I teach a once a week live class and that's, there is a beginner option in there, but I oftentimes teach higher skill. The energy is different. If you want like accountability community, you want to learn some cool shit. You want to move well. That's great. I also teach breath work for performance and also for trauma healing and trauma release. So if someone goes to my website, you can see all the types of programs. I also do men's work as well, uh, but that would be the best place. And also Instagram. I post stuff all the time, tips and what I'm going through in life. And that's just my name, Mike.Salemi. Awesome. I'll make sure to link those in the show thank notes. But, uh, yeah, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you, brother. This has been a lot of fun, man. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 